0: This week on Medical Minefield, June Davidson, an 86 year old who lost three stone on the NHS diabetes soup and shake diet.
1: I had type 2 diabetes. It was very important to me, but I really
2: just wanted to be slim.
3: And Dr. Naveed Sattar, Professor of Metabolic Medicine at the University of Glasgow.
2: If you look at people's quality of life in the direct trial, they're actually the ones who lost a lot of weight. They're happier, healthier individuals yes three months people did find it hard but
0: actually the quality of life improves they felt better welcome to medical minefield the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most i'm barney Kalman, and i'm eve simmons and we're health journalists which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to
3: This week we're asking, is the NHS soup and shakes diet really the magic bullet for diabetes that everyone's been hoping
0: for? As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question or a suggestion for us at Medical Minefield, tweet us at Minefield. So a bit of background about the soup and shake diet, which is what it's called mostly now. It's quite
3: difficult to say. Soup and, soup, soup and shake. Soup and shake. Soup, soup and shake. Why do I find soup and,
0: it? Soup and take. soup
3: and t- shake. <laughs> and anyway, sorry.
0: Well, may you never need to go on it. I have to say, about ten years ago, I was having lunch with Dr. Michael Mosley, who is a long-time male columnist. He told me that he had met this fascinating professor Roy Taylor at Newcastle University, who had essentially told him that consuming a diet that involved something like 800 or 600 calories a day for a period of time was the best possible way to lose weight and that you could do it for as little as two days a week and you would still lose weight and as soon as he said this uh, you know and having worked in the health field for, for many years i'd never heard anything like it so you could diet for two days basically have have a kind of very low calorie diet two days a week and you'd lose lose loads of weight. Mosley was interested in it because he was interested in making shed loads of money from diet. No, <laughs> <laughs> Mosley was interested in it like I was because it was, you know, it was a fascinating and new approach to weight loss. Intermittent
3: know. fasting. Yeah, because previous.
0: Yeah, well, this was it. It was mm. it was called intermittent fasting. Mm. You know, Michael then went on to brand it the five two diet and then into huge diet book trend success. Mm. Later on, he went further into this with the input of Roy Taylor's team and using their research Mm. on these very low-calorie diets. Specifically, they were looking at how these low-calorie diets could bring about weight loss and also reverse diabetes. Mm. Roy Taylor's team had found out through various different studies that part of the dysfunction of diabetes was probably caused by fat accumulating not necessarily over the whole body, but in the liver itself, which then caused dysregulation of the hormones involved in controlling blood sugar. Mm. By losing weight fast, you essentially drained that fat out of the liver and you returned hormone levels to normal and you could bring about a kind of diabetes remission. Once you develop type two diabetes and this very high blood sugar that can cause all kinds of damage around the body, it was generally thought that it was an irreversible situation, that it was incurable, irreversible, etc. And this totally turned that on its head. And of course, with so many people being diagnosed with diabetes, I mean when when I first started writing about it, it was I think it was one in 20 of the population. By the end of this decade, it's going to be one in 10 adults mm. have type 2 diabetes. There's so many people, mm. You know, millions and millions of people. I think in the piece that we're running this week, it says that there's 5 million people and then many millions more on the brink of it. With diabetes and, and all, all of these people on medication, all having to go to the doctor regularly. The you know, problem is that life. it's
3: a condition, it's a chronic condition that leads to lots of different things going yes. wrong with the body. and Heart means, attacks, strokes. In terms of the resources of the NHS, it means that it's not just one specialism that's going right, to be. Right, right. Yeah, I mean,
0: absolutely. Mm. You, you know, it's apparently 10 billion a year to treat diabetes at the moment, you know, which is a sizable proportion penny, of yeah. the entire NHS budget. Mm. The, the studies were showing that by losing weight fast and a lot of weight, it was it, I think it was 15% of body weight lost could bring about this reversal of diabetes and people could come off their medication and they felt a lot better. There was a big study in which, as you know, diets... Are very difficult to study mm. because sort of people need to eat all the time and controlling that and monitoring that in a kind of clinical trial setting, I suppose, is is extremely tricky.
3: And we notoriously underreport what we eat.
0: Exactly, and so they but th- they had almost four hundred people involved in this trial, half of whom, you know, had the the real diet. The, this very low calorie diet and half of whom were a control group. It was called the direct trial. Mm. And this involved three to four months, I think, of eating 800 calories a day in the form of a liquid, so soup or a shake that you mixed up from powder delicious. Mm. Initially it was a huge success. You know, I think after one year, almost half of them had gone into remission which is sort of expected because you do see these very dramatic results within a year of any diet. So we've seen this with low-carb diets. We've seen this with other kinds of diets.
3: Especially extreme diets when it's very low-calorie. Yeah. I really.
0: mean, you know, go figure. You, you you stop someone eating for a large amount of time and they lose weight. But, of course, with diets, the key is bringing out about any kind of lasting change to weight. Mm. And, of course, once people start to return to old patterns of eating – they put on weight again and there was always this question mark in my mind i mean we did a hell of a lot of stuff with you know roy taylor and talking about these studies and promoting those findings and there was always something in in the back of my mind wondering what would happen as things panned out, you know, would, would it last?
3: Well, that's because the wealth of research that already exists shows that on the whole diets don't work. And when you go back and look at the participants 20 years later, I think it's something like 90% of them have gained weight, if not more than mm. where they were to begin with, mm. which is why that, you know, the statistic that's always reported is I think it's about 90% diets don't work.
0: And the background of doing a lot of stories around this direct trial and this kind of diet, diabetes diet, I suppose you want to give some good news to people that, that mm. you know, I mean, people really don't want to be on medication and staring down the barrel of, you know, various different horrible complications from diabetes. And this would genuinely give people some hope, I think. And, you know, of course, it was backed by very well conducted research. But but as I say, th- th- there is this question mark, isn't there, as to what, what happens next? And, and you know, when, whenever I spoke to the, the different professors involved, I always felt like as brilliant as they are, there was always a bit of a kind of and people will go back to normal eating and they will receive support and somehow there will be lasting change. Mm. And it didn't add up to me as you always say, Mm -hmm. weight is such a complicated thing. Mm. It's such a lifelong complicated web Mm. of different factors. And the idea that a diet could solve that in such a simple way, especially when people, you know, a lot of people who've developed type 2 diabetes have become quite overweight Mm. and they find it very difficult to manage their weight. So in general, I'd say that these are complicated cases as as of the latest data mm. so there was 198 participants in the in the original trial mm-hmm. and 11 of them are in diabetes remission now
3: wow does that mean that 11 of them have kept the weight off or could yes. it be that that more of them could have kept the weight off but they just
0: yes oh, so it, again the the 5 year data hasn't been published they mm. announced this a little while back but this 11 figure is presumably the people that have managed to stay low weight. In the initial trial, mm. people that regained weight were given they, they like were given a, course. a refresher course yeah. in which they had to do the whole three months, four month mm. on 800 calorie shakes again. Jeez. And large numbers of them needed to do that. Mm. Large numbers of needed of them needed to do two refresher courses. I think if the ultimate promise mm. is that it's this yeah. life that's going to work and get you off drugs, et cetera, et cetera, then you would do it, wouldn't you? You, you would do it. You would, and your family would be cheering you on and da-da-da. How does it feel when after all of that, you know, three refresher courses, et cetera, et cetera, you still don't manage to do that?
3: So. Absolutely. I mean, as soon as you start messing around with telling people how much how many calories are in something, that's a fact that you can never forget. And it leads to a huge amount of disordered eating. And also what you're doing is for a period of time saying that this simple pleasure in life, which what like most of us enjoy eating, you're then associating food with something you shouldn't be doing. And what kind of relationship does that set up then? So what happens when you're off the shakes and then you have to reintroduce food into your life, you're automatically sort of afraid of it or feel that you shouldn't have it, which then, as we know that studies have shown, as soon as you feel that you shouldn't have something, you end up having more of it. And it's, it's just a disordered relationship. But what worries me more than anything is that we have good research to show that what is really damaging is yo-yo dieting when people lose a lot of weight and then put it back on and then lose it again and then put it back on.
0: Damaging physically or mentally?
3: I or think both? both. But physically, there are some studies that have shown that being a bit overweight for the majority of your life is, is far less unhealthy than yo-yoing.
0: I think that the people that ran the direct trial are running the direct trial. Their heart is in the right place and they're conducting a trial in a very good way in order to really measure the results. But it just begins to look like torture to me.
3: I think what worries me also is the psychological impact of, of constantly having that goal. I mean, a lot of people who I've spoken to who have been overweight have said to me that you constantly feel like your life will begin when you're thin. Mm. And I imagine you know having this very extreme programme and then it not working and then constantly your, your one goal is to get back to that stage where you're that thin again. And it's impossible for it to not have an effect on your physical confidence about how you look, because it is about how you look, whether we like it or not. I mean, it's about your health. But I think that on a very kind of everyday level, that's that's really how most people view it. It's about being thin or not being thin.
0: But also the the sense of of failure. Our reporter Jo McFarlane has has been looking into this and and some of the people that she has spoken to this week, you know, they all blame themselves Mm -hmm. for putting the weight back on life is complicated and to add self-blame on top of everything else when you probably already blame yourself for being in the situation that you've got diabetes i don't know the whole thing is not ideal that is that's my summary
3: i've always had problems with it you know that
0: before we go any further let's hear from someone who has first-hand experience of this diet
3: On the line now is June Davison, who has had experience of the soup and shake diet. June, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to get involved in this diet? I read about it. I don't know if it was in a newspaper or what, but I read about it and it was done
1: by a Newcastle professor.
3: Mm, Roy Taylor. Yeah,
1: Mm. he said how good it was and went on about the benefits of it. And as I was feeling very uncomfortable at the time, I thought, Oh, I can give that a go, but I didn't go to any doctor or anything. I just, he mentioned which food he used. And so I thought, oh, I'll use that food and have a go at this.
0: Were you overweight at the time?
1: I was. I weighed, yes, I weighed about two and a half stone overweight. And did you have type 2 diabetes? I had type 2 diabetes, yes. And I was on tablets, um, metformin for it.
0: And I suppose the reason that you'd want to go on the diet is because you'd read that you'd be able to stop taking the tablets, that it would reverse your diabetes.
1: It was very important to me to do that, but I really just wanted to be slim.
0: Oh, really? And when did you first start doing it? In 2020, in the lockdown. Okay. And so you went about cutting down your calories to sort of, it's it's 800 calories a day, is that right?
1: I've read about it since and 800 was the target. But I just had three shakes a day and that was it. So it's about, mine was about 600 to 700.
3: And how did you get on with it at first, June? Did you find that, I mean, that sounds to me absolutely horrific. (laughs) (laughs) No. Well,
1: he did say in his article that you would be hungry for the first three days and then you wouldn't be hungry after that. I had tried the five and two and I found the two days of not eating was all right. I could cope with that. The, the less I ate, the less I wanted to eat,
2: mm, and mm. so
1: the I was hungry for the first three days, but, but I determinedly stuck to it, and and then I just learned to live with it. Really.
3: What about things like going out for dinner with friends and family and that kind of thing, celebrations? That must have been well. It was. A bit fortunately, of a down.
1: it was lockdown, so we didn't go to mm. many places. But no, I didn't eat much outside of the diet. I used to go walking a lot and every day. And the um, I was always hungry when I came home. And I did get hungry because I used to put off eating the next shake because I knew that after that I was waiting for the next shake. So the longer I put it off, the better. And that meant the evening was not too long for me to cope with. But I used to come in from the walks and I used to have um, something like two sticks of celery and a tomato and, you know, just odds and ends of salad.
3: That couldn't have satisfied you much.
1: <laughs> no, but you do use more calories chewing celery than you do eating it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually quite like celery. I do really like I, celery. But I do, like, but I do
3: like it with a bit of hummus on the end. I have oh. To say. oh, no. I like a bit of salt on, but salt isn't
1: good for me, apparently.
0: I don't think anything's good
1: for me. Yeah, I don't think anything's good for me.
0: But you lost quite a lot of weight, didn't you? After about three months? Yeah,
1: it was four months in total for me. Four months. And I went down to 10 stone 13 or 10 stone 12 or something like that. And I'd, I'd started off at 13 stone 10, so I'd lost three stone. Wow. But that only lasted about a week and I was back up to 11 stone. And... You know, common sense told me that 10 stone something was not good enough for me. It was too low a target. And I um, decided that 11 and a half stone I would feel comfortable with. So Mm. I didn't mind putting a bit of weight on when I stopped. But unfortunately, I didn't stop.
3: (laughs) What was it like when you stopped with the shakes and went back to food? What was the diet like? at first and were you able to eat things that you'd missed or that must have been psychologically very difficult yes for me because I'm a breadaholic so I had um I could eat aren't we all June? <laughs> yeah. and
1: I could eat bread again but it's really for me the less I eat the more I don't want to eat and that's the top and bottom of it for me that's what I should do just not eat
0: I mean, uh, you've got to eat, though. You you do have to eat because you need nutrition to keep your body going.
1: Yes, so they say, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately.
0: <laughs> and when you put the weight back on, did your blood sugar go back up again?
1: Yeah, but that's just quite recently, there is, since last December. It wasn't sort of instant, not that I know of.
0: Yeah, yeah, so sort of two years down the line and that that's kind of where you're at now.
1: Yes, and uh, I'm on metformin again yeah again
0: yeah
3: and have you put all of the weight that you lost back on yes how does that make you feel oh sick
1: absolutely sick gutted i can't believe i allowed myself to put the weight back on but uh, considering i was doing it all on my own i thought i did well but really you're not doing well if it's like giving up smoking you're not doing well if you're still smoking
3: but I have to tell you, June, there is a lot of research that shows that it's not as simple as just having willpower. <laughs> um a lot of yeah. this is 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 totally out of your control, unfortunately, you know, based in genetics and lots of things that none of us can do anything
0: about. And June, you're you're are you eighty five, did you say? Eighty six. Eighty six. Well look, you must be doing something right if you if you get to eighty six. <laughs> And sound as sharp and and switched on as you do. So, Oh, really? I don't think you should beat yourself up too much. But listen, thank you so much for finding some time to join us and for answering our questions.
1: Oh, that's all right.
0: Something that June said is that she did it all on her own. She'd read about it in a paper, and I'm sure lots of people are doing that. The NHS approach is different. So you sign up on a website Mm. and then you select what you want as your meal replacements. And I believe you can have soups, shakes. There are porridges as well. Each one of these is about 200 calories, I believe and so you select those and they're, they're posted to you but if you're accepted onto the program so the initial there was a couple of thousand people accepted onto the program initially and and they in april they said that they were rolling that out to a wider group right. i think anyone eligible now can get it and it, it, it's costing the nhs about 1100 or something mm. per patient mm. these are private companies giving out these meal replacements and the NHS pays for them basically, but you also get peer support so that you you go on these Zoom meetings with other people on the diet Mm -hmm. and uh, I presume dietitians that work, work for your local authority who will talk you through whatever it is that local authority dietitians talk people through when they're existing on soups and liquids. So there is support. Support is available. It's available. I don't know what it involves. There was there was one guy who was saying that he felt like it wasn't enough or that it ended when the uh, weight loss stage ended, which was when you needed the support the most. So there might be some snags to iron out in, in terms of delivery of that.
3: I get the impression it's like a diet club type situation, like diet meetings, you know, like Weight Watchers.
0: No weigh-ins though. Obviously.
3: Without the weigh-ins. I have to say, June's conversation made me very, very sad. Why? She's 86 years old and it seems as though the last 10 years of her life have been focused, in her words, not on her health, but on being thin. I just think at 86 years old, to spend however many weeks she spent living off dust is such a waste of time.
0: (laughs) But also I understand why people don't want mm. to have type 2 diabetes <laughs> because it's serious. And, you know, especially if you do get yourself to 86, you know, the idea that you might lose your sight or, you know, have problems with your feet or, you know, all the other things that could catch you um, if you have diabetes. I, I understand that. Before we go any further, let's, let's have a chat to a doctor who, who knows all about this subject. Joining us now is Dr. Navid Sattar. Professor of Metabolic Medicine at the University of Glasgow. Thanks very much for finding some time to join us today. I feel like every time I ever talk to you nowadays, it's, it's about this very subject about how things are going with with the direct trial which which you were involved in I know this is something that you're very passionate about because you are on the coal face working with people who have diabetes and, and really want to lose weight we've just been given some new data from the direct trial which as you know I'm, I'm very intrigued by and that we've seen that there are 11 people left who are in diabetes remission. How do you feel about the success of the direct trial, this this diet? I think there's lots of pluses. I think
2: what you must remember is it's not all just about remission. It's also about time spent with low sugar levels. So even people who perhaps who are in remission have come back, have had two to three to four, five years with sugar levels in the normal range and weight much lower than it would have been otherwise. And what we know in terms of complications of diabetes It's not just one glucose level at a time or the weight at one particular time. It's your aggregated exposure to high weight and high sugar that accelerates risk of heart disease or eye disease or kidney disease. So the fact that we've managed to help people keep some of those risk factors down for a long period of time or a variable period of time is good. And there's no reason why such individuals couldn't undergo that intervention again as one factor. And equally, I think we do need to work harder helping people lose lots of weight initially, put it back on, we need to help them work out how best to sustain some of that weight loss or keep it off for longer. I would say Direct was a really fundamental paradigm shift, but it's the start rather than the finish of our journey in terms of helping people lose weight. But we can improve as we go on, as we learn more and we see more data on how to
0: improve it. Do you think that diet is going to be the answer to this problem? Last time we spoke, we were just about to go to a big presentation on semaglutide. And I know you're really interested in that as well. The answer
2: to the obesity epidemic is going to be really difficult. But one has to be changing in food environment. Whether the government policies will allow that to happen, I don't know. Time will tell. Number two, yes, drugs are definitely needed because there are many people already living with obesity with very high BMI levels and changes in the food environment are not going to make big differences to their lives at this moment in time and they're already suffering from lots of disease linked to their weight excess weight so we do need a way to help tackle weight loss
0: the thing about these diets it's tough it's not easy to exist on soups and shakes of 800 calories a day for many many months and then potentially have to repeat that multiple times i mean that's that's going to be very difficult just no you're anyone. right you,
2: people were in the trial most on average had it for 3 months and then didn't do it again So, you know, yes, three months, people did find it hard, but actually the quality of life improves, they felt better. And it doesn't need to be, you know, one or the other. It could be a combination of approaches. My sense is in the future, we perhaps will use the direct type of approach in individuals. Some people will do great on it, don't need anything else. Others might need to repeat it. Potentially others could have, for example, one of these drugs to then effectively control their appetite so they don't bounce back, you know, giving it a very low dose potentially. Those kind of trials have started to be done whereby, they give a very low calorie diet, followed by, for example, a drug that helps them keep their appetite under control. So I think it's a mixed match approach to help many more people be much lower weight and have better quality lives than they are now.
3: Do you think that enough weight, forgive the, the pun, has been given to the risks of these kind of interventions? So the long-term complications perhaps that may be associated with yo-yo dieting and also the psychological impact of being on a starvation diet, essentially.
2: Well, yes and no. I mean, I think you've got to be careful. The starvation diet, remember, it's only for a short period of time, for a few weeks. And actually, if you look at people's quality of life in the direct trial one year, they actually, the ones who lost a lot of weight, felt much better. So they're happier. they were happier, healthier individuals. And if you look at a surgery trial in diabetes compared to medical, and people were 20 kilograms lighter for 10 years, their vitality, their pain was far lower. They had much better mobility. They had better mental health. Everything, so being able to keep people at a lower weight and stop putting on lots of weight, actually in the end does result in happier, healthier, more mobile individuals. So that's number one. Number two, the side effects of these drugs, they cause nausea and vomiting in the short term for most people, for some people certainly. And often that lessens, you know, the chemical aspect starts to kick in and then they eat smaller volumes of food and that nausea and vomiting often dissipates. So far, these drugs look like they may protect against heart disease. They certainly do. And protect against stroke. And they may protect liver and other aspects, all linked to weight loss.
3: Naveed, we spoke to a woman who had undergone the the soup and shakes diet herself. She'd got in contact with Roy Taylor. It sounds like and it, it kind of started her own experiment. And she, from the conversation, you know, I, I was very concerned with the way that she was talking about food. This is a, a woman in her late eighties saying things like, "I just want to be thin," and and I should probably just not eat. And it's better if I don't eat. Is there a, a concern or even a consciousness about eating disorders in this sphere? Absolutely.
2: I mean, it's like any intervention. That pretty much every intervention, there's always a downside in small number of individuals. You know, and you know, some people might abuse some of these new drugs to help them cope with their eating disorder. That's definitely possible. What we have to look at is: can we mitigate that risk? Can we keep it low? And what's the overall benefit for the whole population of a particular intervention? And there's that benefit substantially outweighing the potential harms? And if there are harms, can we work how to minimise those harms going forward? And that's what we've done in medicine all along over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And that's what we've got to do with these drugs. If the overall benefit for the vast majority is fantastic, does that mean we don't you know, use that particular type of intervention? And the answer is probably we should use that intervention, but then try and minimise the risk. So it's, we've got to look at the whole big context, absolutely.
0: Well, Professor Navid Sattara, it's been great to speak to you as always. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. So it feels to me that the direct trial was really important, that it showed uh, on multiple levels the mechanism of a diet and how it reverses diabetes. Mm -hmm. And it was a very well-conducted clinical trial into diet, which having seen many a clinical trial on diet they aren't often done in such a methodical and careful way and it's really set a benchmark it's going to be very important going forward because of how much was was able to be measured and controlled for and how much they know about the outcomes and and the more data that they're able to provide the research community to scrutinize the better. Mm. So I think it's really important that they're as as transparent as, as possible, you know, giving every minor detail that could possibly be needed. You know, I mean Naveed said it was it was not long, but I mean I just I couldn't do it having written about the five two die, etc., I couldn't do one day of it. I, I got to the end of the 5-2 fasting day where you're supposed to have just 500 <laughs> calories. I don't know what it is. And I, I think I ate a pizza.
3: I also have to say, I know that I'm um, you know, tooting this horn again and again, but eating disorders can develop very quickly and often it just takes a couple of weeks of an extreme diet to kick somebody into a mindset that can be incredibly damaging and can outlive that diet and I think that there's a big misconception that just because perhaps this group of patients won't be very thin that they can't develop eating disorders and that's completely untrue in fact the most common eating disorder is binge eating disorder most people with eating disorders are a healthy weight if not overweight and I just think any intervention that means patients don't have to think about what they're eating is much better in my opinion so
0: so you you that sounds like you're quite open to you know these new weight loss
3: semaglutide, etc yeah yeah i think if yeah i think if if there's any intervention that is is going to have the least harms in terms of psychology it's going to be something that that takes the decisions out of the hands of the patient but do
0: you remember when we spoke to sarah vine about it mm. and she said that she just didn't enjoy eating anymore that it removed all pleasure from food.
3: Yeah. I mean, I also think that that can be a di- ticket to disordered eating too. I-, I think it all is. I guess it's going to be an inevitable risk. And what worries me is that doctors who work in obesity are not particularly sensitive to eating disorders. And I just worry that those risks won't be taken seriously enough you know yes physical health obviously is incredibly important but at what cost and um, we have to be careful that we're not just being very naive to this quite significant risk that can can go undetected
0: absolutely Well, look, you can read all about this and all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday, which you can consume in newspaper format on mailplus.co.uk or on the Mail app.
3: We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then.
0: Goodbye.